Good morning. Let us go before God in prayer. Holy Spirit, come. Come to this text that we are reading from your word today. Open our eyes to, to see what you would have us to see. Open our ears to have us hear what you would have us hear. Open our hearts to receive you. Be with my words from my mouth and be with the musings of our hearts. Amen. So this morning's scripture text is from Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 15, and can be found on page 90 in your Red Pew Bible. Listen now to this word from God. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb the mountain of God. There, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that the bush was on fire, but that it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, Here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now, go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Horeb is actually Sinai, too. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. The word of God for the people of God. 
there's nothing really quite like the drama of the Exodus narrative. The feeling of the Israelites, the freeing of the Israelites from generations of slavery, it's one of the watershed moments of our faith tradition. It's a story about salvation from injustice. It's about the maddening patience that it takes to wander in wilderness heat and bugs while God is forming you into a community. It is about a God who hears the cries and laments of tortured people and creates a path to a new beginning so they can see their very own identity in the promised land of Israel. And it is only fitting to have a dramatic lead-in for the starring role of Moses. Moses, like the rest of us, has a speckled past. Up to this point in the backdrop of the Exodus story, we watch God take care of Moses. Before Moses was born, the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, has the Hebrew people under his thumb. He fears their growing numbers, so he enslaves them bitterly and makes them work grueling hours. There was an edict issued that every male baby born to the Hebrews was to be killed. Moses' birth mother was intensely brave and hid him for three months, no telling how she got a newborn to be quiet enough to go undiscovered. But when she couldn't hide him anymore, she put him in a papyrus basket and lowered it into the Nile River. Moses was discovered among the reeds by Pharaoh's daughter and raised in royalty with his birth mother as the Hebrew wet nurse. An incredibly dramatic beginning. The one who would lead the people from slavery and into freedom was himself saved from the jaws of certain death within moments of his birth. Even his name is a declaration and a foreshadowing. Moses means in Hebrew, drawn out of the water. As a wrinkled baby, he is literally lifted from the river, a move that saved his life. And chapters later, we will watch him shepherd his people through a dry pass with the Red Sea swelling all around them. He will draw them out of the water, a baptism of God's people. There's a deep streak of justice-seeking in Moses' DNA. You'll remember that after he grew up under the guise of Egyptian royalty, he was watching his own people work as slaves. An Egyptian boss was brutally beating one of the Hebrews, which made Moses' blood boil. In a rage, he killed the Egyptian and buried him in the sand. Not long after, Moses heard two Hebrew laborers arguing with one another, and Moses shamed them. Why spend energy fighting one another when there's plenty of trouble coming from the Egyptian tyranny? More than once, we find Moses defending the defenseless, and he seeks peace even among his own people. When news that Moses murdered an Egyptian reaches Pharaoh, Pharaoh orders Moses to be killed. So today is a famous scene of Moses and the burning bush, and it comes right after Moses flees Egypt. 
Moses, bless his heart, has no idea yet what is in store for him. It is a long road ahead, 40 years plus, in fact. This stuttering outlaw will go head to head with Pharaoh. He will free the Israelites, and then he will field all sorts of grumbling and complaints from the hungry refugees over the next four decades. He will lose his temper. He will climb Mount Sinai. He will receive the Ten Commandments. And he will breathe his last, gazing over into the promised land that he sweat so hard and wandered so long to glimpse. But first... He's just watching some sheep. Isn't it funny how so many of the greats in the Bible start off by shepherding on a hillside? Abraham, Jacob, David. Before they're called by God, they're just out in the field, communing with nature and keeping a lookout. I imagine shepherding would be a fairly boring pastime. No one to talk to, lots of open space, and time to think. I wonder what Moses was pondering out there with the flock before the whole angel of the Lord in a bush that was on fire thing. What was his headspace like? Was he simply concerned with counting lambs' heads and wondering about the sweat and the heat? Or was he ruminating? Was he replaying when his temper overtook him and he had a case of the red rage? Was he remembering what it felt like to be blinded by a fury that left him with blood on his hands? I wonder if he was reeling, dragged down by the stain of it, full of regret and wishing he could take it back. Whatever was going on in that brain of his, it all came to an abrupt halt when he did a double take to see a bush on fire. Well, really, it was a bush on flame. The bush itself wasn't being consumed. It was bright and it was blazing, but it was totally intact. And there was an angel visible inside of it. Naturally, upon seeing the bush, Moses stops in his tracks and goes to investigate further. When God saw that he very clearly had Moses' attention, God calls out his name, Moses, Moses. And Moses, in fear and in trembling, hand half raised to shield his eyes, here I am. And God tells him to remove his sandals because he is in fact right this minute on holy ground. God goes on to explain the reason for this roadside spectacle. God has heard the miserable cries of his people. And God means to deliver them out of Pharaoh's hands and lead them to this brand new spot that will be all their own. The clincher. Oh, and Moses, I will send you to Pharaoh. Can you even imagine being Moses? Even a little bit? You're still kind of dazed and confused from the bush that's very clearly on fire and oddly not creating any ash or smoke. And you are, in truth, very grateful to have a humdrum task like sheep watching after having narrowly escaped Pharaoh's warrant for your execution. And it's fairly terrifying to be speaking to the Lord. 
But God asking you to turn right around and go back to the place where you're wanted for murder is just about unthinkable. All of a sudden, you look down at your bare feet, the grains of sand swirling between your toes, and you feel them like a dusty reminder of your vulnerability. I'm not sure whether Moses is stalling with his questions or if he's grasping for excuses, but Moses will come to God with five rebuttals total. Only the first two are in this morning's passage, and they are these. Moses asks, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And secondly, he asks, what do I tell the Israelites when they ask me what your name is? Basically, Moses is asking, who am I and who are you? Isn't that the way of it at the very heart of things? Don't we all just want an answer to both of those questions? Whether we're on the verge of being asked to do something really hard, or if we're grieving big losses, or gazing at babies fresh from heaven, or facing the complexities of our human systems, or maybe even just drinking coffee and watching the sunrise. At the deep down core, we are aching to know, God, who am I? And God, who are you? This is one of the most poignant moments in scripture to me. God knows he's asking a lot of Moses, but God has the answer to both of Moses' questions. God knows who Moses is, and God knows who God is. And here, in this tiny little moment, God reveals God's own name to Moses. Such a gift. Because there's so much in a name. To know one's name is to see them for who they are. It's why prisoners are stripped of their names and given a number instead. It's not just a name they're being denied, it's the narrative of who they've been. Somehow to know and verbalize a name marks, makes real their power as an entity, as a force, as a reality. It's why parents pour over baby names, holding them up and looking at them from every different angle, trying out nicknames that could be used against them. And why books are sold with lists of baby names alongside their meaning, their origin, their different spellings. A name is everything. God gives God's name. I am who I am. It's a pretty incredible revelation. It's so specific and it is so mystifying. What does it even mean, I am who I am? God's name here is a verb. It is the verb to be in the present tense. And yet when it's said, it implies that I am who I am has always been true and always will be true. God is generative, vivifying, and creative. And I'm sure Moses and we were maybe hoping for a little more clarity. Like, I am what? Fill in the blank. And that's exactly the mystery. I am who I am means we don't get to, with any kind of authority, fill in any of those blanks on God's behalf. 
But every flavor of religion has their own preference. God is love. God is social justice. God is holy. God is righteous. God is pure. God is Trinitarian. God is judgment. But really the only answer is, I am who I am. Simple enough and as complex as the creation God made. So the kids were out of school last week on Wednesday for Hurricane Adalia, and the bank was closed too, so Stu was home, and we were ready, set, go. I'd made a big pot roast. I'm not really sure why this felt like hurricane prep, but it felt really important. We had fresh batteries for all of our lanterns, and we charged up our phones as far as they could go. So the power flickered all morning long, but then about two o'clock in the afternoon, it really went out. With no access to screens or internet or music, and it wasn't particularly safe to go riding bikes outside, we all wound up sitting on the screen porch, just watching and feeling the storm. It was nothing short of a spiritual experience. The wind was ripping through the palm trees and the oaks, and right before a gust would hit, there'd be this rumble, kind of like an airplane about to take off. And then a second later, the full force of the wind would come, racing through the trees. The branches looked really alive and majestic. We sat in almost total silence, kind of in this trance of wonder. And it felt like the truest thing in the world. The wind whistling and the trees whipping and God just whispering, I am who I am. It doesn't make sense. I'm not sure it's supposed to. So we look on in terror and awe. We witness things like raging wildfires, tsunamis, and hurricanes. We stand on the edge of canyons and at the peak of mountain ranges, acutely aware of our smallness and glimpsing the power of the bigness. So whether Moses' question was a stalling tactic or an actual question, I think God gave Mo Moses both less than he wanted and more than he bargained for. Because the truth is, standing there shoeless, exposed and scared, Moses' smallness seemed to fit like a puzzle piece into that confident bigness. Moses probably went back into Egypt with a racing heartbeat and the dregs of imposter syndrome. But he also went in with just enough. He carried with him that bizarre moment when the bush didn't burn, but his heart was set on fire. When he got his tiny little sliver of a meeting with God, he found that the vast unknowable that stretches out over eons and light years, it's the same familiar God of his ancestors, the one who's been present to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. God's I amness is enough. For all the times when Moses' stutter makes his cheeks flush, and when Pharaoh turns out to be taller and meaner than he remembered, and when the Egyptian chariots are chasing with intense speed, 
and when the whole lot of ungrateful Hebrews panic at what they're going to eat. God's I amness is enough. It proves to be more than enough. And when Moses rests in the I am, he realizes exactly who he has been all along. So who are we? The illusion, and it is an illusion, is that when we get the thing or acquire the success or add the shiny, we quell our suspicion that we're lacking. We get more and we want more and we add more and we seek more, kind of like the bricks at Babel. We get more, we want more, we add more, just one more layer, one more business deal, one more social invitation, one more ego-inflating performance. Then we'll arrive. We'll reach the place where we feel whole, where we feel enough, like we can earn our way to being somebody, to being lovable. But faith, (laughs) faith is taking off our shoes. Faith means getting up the audacity to sit still and let the mystery in. Let God's bigness scrape off one by one the layers of our own self-preservation. Let God's bigness knock over our ornately framed dogmas of what religion should look like. Let God's bigness in through the wealth we have accumulated as a safety blanket in a fickle world. Let God be who God is and penetrate the armor of master's degrees, of well-crafted prayers, of maxed out 401ks until, until God reaches the center of who we are, the magma of us. And there, we will see the little flicker of Imago Dei, that echo of God's image from our Genesis. It's a little spark that every human possesses simply by occupying space and breathing air in God's world. It is a flame that gets hidden under bushels of baggage, but when we are excavated deeply enough, We find that what we have suspected for as long as we can remember isn't really true after all. We are not basically bad at our conception. We are whole. We are lovely. I am who I am thought us up and loved us into human beings. Beings who are who we are. And like Moses did, We can count on that fiery, eternal love that blazes but does not burn. We can count on it, and we can rest in it. Amen.